Welcome to the exam room. I'm your host, Brian Bartabedian. I had the chance recently to sit down with Ken Gordon, community strategist for EPAM Continuum, a global innovation design firm. An accomplished writer and self-described humanist, Ken's views on the medical humanities, doctors on Twitter, and creativity made for a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Ken, welcome to the exam room. This is a little bit unusual in that normally I have uh, medical people and people who are physicians and whatnot who um, come into the exam room with me here. And so the fact that you're here is is interesting in its own way. We'll get there. But tell us about the company you work for and what you do there. Yeah, I work for a company called EPAM Continuum, and we're a global innovation design firm. And we are basically in the business of doing uh, product and service and experience design. And we've created all sorts of things from the um, um, the Omnipod, which is a is sort of a wearable patch pump for diabetics, to the Reebok pump sneaker, to the, um, the Swiffer, if you're familiar with the Swiffer. Uh, we've been around for over 30 years. And we practice something called uh, human-centered design, which basically... Um, looks at design issues by putting people first, getting to know the relevant people in their relevant contexts, and by developing a kind of a conversational relationship with them, really understanding what their needs and wants are, and using those to inform the design process. So is Continuum like IDEO, if I'm allowed to ask that? Uh, yeah, we're sort of in the same, fi- we're just in the same phylum. <laughs> to put it biologically, something along those lines, yeah. So, what would a typical project be for your company? Would a would a would a Fortune 500 company reach out to you and say we want to design a new a new patch for people with cancer, or how would that work? Yeah, I mean, there there are all different kinds of problems people have, and sometimes the problem they come to us isn't really the problem they have, and part of our job is to make sure that they're diagnosing the issue properly. And so we really are very, very careful in sort of coming into any kind of situation by asking sort of naive questions and and not rushing to understand what the uh, issue is or what the solution is. We, you know, we start with sort of beginner's mind and then we allow that to filter as time goes on into our expert's mind. And so we go from being sort of, uh, open and, and sort of naive, professionally naive to, to a little more sort of discerning as it goes along. So it really depends on um, assessing each situation and what's going on with the, the particular need. Yeah. It's interesting. A couple of years back at Medicine X, the, there was some IDEO partners on the stage and a patient advocate uh, stood up and said, uh, the only person who knows how to design diabetes solutions is a person with diabetes. And it led to a very interesting discussion that the people with the problem don't always know what the solution is. And I think you just, you just kind of made that point, right? Yeah. I mean, it's that sort of Pollyanna's paradox. We know more than we can say, you know, and as you know, as a doctor, right. you can, you could feel what's going on there in a way that your doctor cannot. And so it's super important to be able to sort of translate the, uh, the sounds that come out of a patient to, to understand what's going on. And, and you know, it takes a certain kind of skill to hear, um, that properly. And the people I work with are, are, have excellent ears, you know, they, they really are, um, 
superb diagnosticians. Mm-hmm. They really can. It's part of it is listening to what's being said, what isn't being said. You know, observing people uh, in their environment and and really getting to understand as quickly as possible, as best as possible, the holistic picture of what this um, person's experience is. So when they asked uh, Henry Ford, or when Henry Ford asked his customers what they wanted, he apparently said uh, faster horses, right? That's right. That's right. So yeah, if I could go back in time, I think, uh, and was younger, uh, I probably would jump on this uh, health design uh, angle like Bon Coup does, because I think that's really where the future is. So it's a, it's fascinating work. But let's jump into how you and I met. Uh, yeah. And I kind of forgot, how did we meet? Uh, I don't remember. I, you know, we met on Twitter somehow. I mean, uh, one, you know, a big part of our business is healthcare. So that means a big part of my job is to talk to people who are saying and doing interesting things in healthcare, okay. uh, in social and off. So you naturally are one of those people who I uh, heard your voice. And, you know, one of the things I do is I tend to sort of just start talking to someone who's saying something interesting. And it's funny. Uh, and I want to talk to this a little bit with you about uh, medical Twitter because medical Twitter is a funny business and it's different from Twitter proper in a number of ways. And one of the ways is there's a sort of asymmetry, I think, um, to a lot of the sort of thought leaders in medicine who are on Twitter, but they engage in, in certain ways that that sort of are elevated above a lot of people. And you uh, don't have those airs. You immediately started talking back and we were able to get right. a legitimate kind of symmetrical conversation. And I can always tell very quickly um, when I'm dealing with a, a doctor, whether that's going to happen or not. That's interesting. So I, I actually preempted you maybe, and you talked about continuum, but, um, and you just alluded to what you do there. So you kind of do outreach to someone, to thought leaders and people in the media. Is that correct? That's right. I didn't actually get around to describing what I do. My job I, right now, my job is called the, uh, content conversation and community strategist. And that means I run a nonstop intellectual dinner party. I am, my job is, my job is to talk to people and to get ideas going, to develop relationships with them and then to produce an artifact of those relationships. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, it really is about uh, connecting with people over ideas and innovation and design. And, um, it's cool, man. I'm 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 very fortunate to be able to do this. Yeah. One of the things I one of the things I do is because I'm a, a book person and I was a literary journalist uh, for a decade before I did this. Is that I used to read books with a pen in hand mm-hmm. and I would fill up the margins with all kinds of questions that I would ask eventually in an email to the author and set up an interview and then write a piece. What I do now is I'll read a book and I will just tweet at the author and start a conversation in real time. And it's an amazing thing. I've, I've made so many sort of connections and, and uh, friendships um, with the uh, people who are writing amazing things just by doing that. And it's, it's a really amazing time. I, I love engaging with authors on Twitter and it's just one of the great things about having this big swimming pool. Um, so do you, is it, is what you do business development or is it, um, marketing or what would you, or you defy classification maybe? Well, I'm in the marketing department. Um, it's not, uh, I don't know if it's business development proper, but sometimes it does lead to business. Um, but the truth of the matter is there's, there's an element to it that's really very much about 
those content and those conversations and that community building that is, uh, I think in a way separate from actually getting someone to sign on the dotted line. But you know, it's, it's not, uh, unrelated entirely. Yeah. So I think we, I think we met, uh, in this big swimming pool that I call Twitter. And, um, I think we were thinking in some of the same spaces and, gravitated towards one, uh, one another, I think. And, and we had a, had a couple of phone calls over the past couple of years and we share a lot of common ground in uh, our belief that a lot of the solutions that we face in healthcare can be found outside of the immediate medical space, right? Totally. And I, I, one of the things I like about what you're doing is you're encouraging other doctors to be more public um, with, with their personas and, and with their uh, opinions. And I, I think that's a super healthy thing um, for physicians to be doing. And I wish more of them did that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's real, uh, there's real opportunity that happens when we put our thinking out into the public realm. And as I always say, visibility creates opportunity. When people see you think people reach out and when you'll reach out, that's when connections happen. And most of them don't go anywhere, but oftentimes they do like friendships like ours. Right. One of the funny things is I live in suburban Boston and where I live, there are everybody's a doctor. I am like the non-doctor on the block. <laughs> Sorry to it's, hear that. Yeah, it yeah. is what it is. But um, you know, yeah. it, it's funny because not all doctors are cut from the same cloth. And I know plenty of doctors. Mm. You know, the, the idea of uh, CP Snow's two cultures thing, right? There are so many doctors really do have um, you know a part of them that's that's dedicated to sort of reading and thinking and ideas, and they're not just mm-hmm. entirely focused on their medical practice. Um, and when I engage those people, it, it becomes very, very clear that you can have a really deep conversation because not only do they have a hunger for that sort of intellectual life, um, it's also balanced with this sort of life and death experiences that you get, um, from doing your hospital rounds and being in the exam room all the time. And so it's really, it sort of allows them to have a very informed, uh, point of view on the world and it makes for sort of great, um, conversations and, and great friendships really. And gives them a bigger perspective, which I think will feed into, which feeds into some of the issues about burnout, which I think we'll touch on uh, a, a little bit down the road here. But let's talk about docs in in public. Um, you are a you are someone who who is uh, an avid user of Twitter, uh, and that's how we met, of course. And uh, you engage with health professionals, including physicians there. And I guess you've you've been aware of this concept of medical Twitter. Right. I guess the idea that yeah. docs identify as having their own group on on, on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I, this term med Twitter, the hashtag med Twitter is only something I've had seen come up in the past couple of years. But I mean, what do you think of that as someone who is not who does what you do? How, how do you how do you see that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't love silos. Yeah. I, I, I love, I love people who want to range across fields. You know, to me, those are the most interesting people. Right. So when I see that, I, it makes me feel a little bit sort of, uh, not uncomfortable, but sad because I think you could learn so much more, um, on the, in the Twitter experience, just by heading into different, um, areas. You know, I spend time talking to healthcare people. I also spend a lot of time talking to sort of educators, and one of the reasons I like educators is that they are really good and open about being thoughtful and sharing their opinions. You know, they really do want to give you the kind of feedback they give to their students when you put something out there or you ask a question. And uh, doctors in the same way, these sort of people who are these sort of uh, service-driven professionals, right, mm-hmm. uh, are really sort of use Twitter in the right way. I always think for me, Twitter is like if you're not putting yourself in sort of a position to be either a student or teacher, 
you're probably not using Twitter right. To me, that sort of that sort of you know that sort of uh, dynamic, um, the educational dynamic, right. is really the most powerful one. And I uh, I look for people who are doing that, and I find the people who really want to do that are the ones who uh who can live in who are like to travel in, in the different sectors and um. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know you've done it. I've observed you connecting with other kinds of people, and I and right. I, I I like that you're modeling that for other docs. So it's so interesting. I, I do fair number of workshops for physicians, uh, helping them find their public voice and that sort of thing. And when I when I speak to uh, let's call them Twitter naive audiences or social media naive audiences, <laughs> um, yeah. it's remarkable how there's 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 a there's a strict divide. There are people, there are people who see the opportunity of having of being public facing, and there are some that just they don't want any part of it. They want to remain in their offices. They want to remain siloed. And to me, it's just so fascinating because, as you pointed out, I kind of I kind of enjoy. This is what fuels me and keeps me going is uh, connection with yeah. people. Like well, I mean, I feel like if I were a doctor, right, and uh-huh. you're every single day, you've got people from all over the place coming into your offices, and what you need to know is have a, a big repertoire of of learning to authentically respond to people and to hear them. Like the the it, it would, I would probably try and go out of my way to meet as many different kinds of people and just to sort of see what a conversation with different sorts of folks might be. Mm. You know. Right. To test out your your sort of uh, you know your your bedside manner sort of on other people and make sure you you you're getting through to folks and I think Twitter offers you the opportunity to talk to all different kinds of folks and I think there's there's something there that could be really useful from a, um, a medical conversation point of view. Right, 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 right. Um, so speaking of being out in public and doing other things, I blog and as you know do do other creative ventures. Um, and I recently read this book by one of my fame, my, uh, my favorite authors, uh, Austin Cleon called keep going. And it's really a, yeah. a tiny manifesto for, uh, <laughs> the artist in all of us. Have you had a chance to look at that? I have. And I, I know, I mean, I've been, uh, you know, chit chatting with Austin a little bit on Twitter for years now. And I think it's really, I think what you've hit on is this idea that there's that element of, uh, the, the physician burnout also exists in the artistic world and that, uh, that Austin Austin is really looking and thinking about how to get past that and how to, how to, um, design a life that can thwart the burnout. And, uh, I, I think it's a really good point you brought up in your blog post, uh, about the book. Yeah. There's that ground. That he, he, in the first chapter has this, he cites this quote from Groundhog Day, um, where, um, who was the who was the actor in Groundhog Day? Uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray approaches two drunks in a bowling alley and says, uh, "What would you do if you, you know, woke up every day and had to do the same thing over and over again?" And uh, Cleon points out that what we would do is art, and it 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 really hit me because I think about a lot of docs who, with the the recent industrialization of medicine, with the fact that we're all being mm-hmm. forced to do more in a shorter period of time. Um, it's, we need art and we need, we need a creative outlet and we need something to do besides show up and have seven minute encounters with humans. Absolutely. I, uh, it's so sad to read about that. 
you know, physician burnout is seems like such a terrible thing to be happening. And it, it, I, I read that I, my, my heart really goes out to these doctors who've poured their whole lives, enormous amount of work into helping people. And they're just, they're just ruining themselves with, with, with the way things are set up. And it, there's got to be a solution to it. And um, I think art might be part Yeah, of it. no, I think, I think the, some of the stuff that Austin Cleon points out in his book and is that more often the, or better, the lifestyle that he leads of uh, this belief that we, we really need to capture and create things is uh, something that we can probably pull into medicine. And if more doctors kind of embrace this mindset, I think we would all be a lot better off. I know without my without this podcast and without my blog, um, I, you know, I'm just not sure what I would do. I would probably be, you know, facing a, a similar situation as a lot of my colleagues feeling just kind of hopeless. And we all kind of need something besides seeing patients. We do. And I think, uh, art is a sort of, uh, very sort of generative and, and useful way to sort of structure one's life. I think, you know, Cleon is really right about that. And, and the sense that it's not just art for the sake of, you know, landing in the museum if you can, or the New Yorker or whatever, he really talks about it as almost as a sort of therapeutic thing. And I, I think, um, more adults need to take that seriously if they're looking to avoid those sort of states of burnout. I honestly, I was, after reading, uh, keep going, I was thinking to myself, I think he kind of pigeonholes himself with artists a little bit. I think the the overall philosophy that he embodies and the way he thinks and sees the world around him, I think has much broader reach than just with artists. I think I've suggested his book and people say, well, I'm not an artist, but I think it has greater applicability beyond uh, artists, you know? I agree. I would like to see him do a book called Art Isn't Just for Artists. Or Art Shouldn't Be Just for yeah, Artists. Well, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I feel like the two of you are on stage talking about that would be really interesting. Yeah, be, I, I got um, to get him on, get him into the exam room. So listen, speaking of docs being sort of marginalized and redefined, there is this whole issue of artificial intelligence and machines taking over what we do. And I know that you had the chance to read Eric Topol's Deep Medicine, right? And I, you actually, if you've not read it, um, uh, Ken wrote a, a brilliant perspective piece in Stat. Uh, what was the name of it? Did it have a name? Uh, the title is something like Paging Dr. Paging Topol. Dr. Topol. Yeah. Multidimensional. Yeah. And yeah, great, so great that's review. That's if you want to understand uh, 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 what deep medicine is about, it's uh, worth reading uh, Ken Gordon's uh, review. But in that. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. In that piece, you talk about the multidimensional narrative of Eric Tobel's Deep Medicine. Um, first off, tell us what the book is and, and what you meant by multidimensional narrative. Yeah. I mean, the book is a, an extremely deep dive into sort of how AI and machine learning can help bring the sort of humanity back to a healthcare. And part of it, I think what Topol sees is the future is that if we can get all this sort of data collection and, and artificial intelligence together, make it interoperable, you know, allow people to get their data from their, their eight different doctors and, and everything else that's going to, all the million things that need to happen. If we can do that, then doctors can have more meaningful relationships with their patients longer, uh, more in-depth, slower um, sort of treatment and you know, just stopping uh, this sort of superficial and sort of uh, speed dating uh, tempo of medicine and making it something that's really sort of the 
uh, fulfilling and meaningful and satisfying, uh, something that will work for both as a professional um, life and sort of something really profound for the patient. He really wants um, to make things uh, deeper. And he thinks that these technologies can help bring that forward. And one of the things I noticed while I was reading the book was that his story in itself is sort of the embodiment of what that future might be. And what I mean by this is that he takes his time and he reveals several sides Mm -hmm. of himself in the course of this book. We see him as a patient. We see him as a guy, uh, as a, as a, as whose father-in-law dies and he's grieving and he's planning for his death and dealing with palliative care. And we see him as a husband and we see him as a father and we see him, you know, as a world renowned expert and, uh, um, you know, a physician. And so this idea that, that there are multiple levels and sides, uh, to our doctors is probably just as important as understanding that there are multiple sides and levels to patients. And so it's sort of like he's, he's creating a sort of an ideal Mm. future state in the narrative itself. And by reading this, you could feel, um, where he wants to go. In addition, there's, you know, a thousand case studies and, and he's talked to all these people who've got a, a new app or whatever. And he thinks through um, a variety of places in which um, they're trying to bring AI into medicine, some successfully, some less successfully. Um, but it, re- it really is trying to uh, give a holistic vision of how this will impact the physician. And he's using himself as as the exemplar. And I think it's it's really uh, an interesting way to do yeah, yeah, here's what I, what I see, what I, you know, weighed in the waters of Twitter. And that is the people around me, I've got on the left, we've got Luddites who want to turn back the hands of medicine to the, you know, the 20th century. And I'm flanked on the other <laughs> side by techno utopians who are telling me that next year robots are going to be walking around the hospital and we're not going to need doctors anymore. And so <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm somewhere in the middle because I, I think there are things in the 20th century we need to pull forward, which he does in the book. And there are realistic things about the, about AI and the future of medicine that are overhyped vastly. And he, he sort of tempers all that, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. He is definitely trying to be a uh, realistic uh, without being pessimistic. And I think that's uh, key to his, his sort of ethos is that he, he will be critical, but, but he still um, has a lot of hope. And I think that's probably the smart way to approach it. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me is this idea that despite the fact that we see technology separating us from patients he makes the case that AI is ultimately going to potentially allow us to be closer to patients, right? Yeah, yeah. No, he uh, definitely thinks that there, it, there'll be a um, more intimate relationship between the doctor and patient through AI, for sure. Yeah, I would probably put Eric Topol as one of the uh, early 21st century's greatest voices in, in medicine. One of the great translators of, uh, of this generation, I think. I think so. And I, I think I, what I liked about the, this particular book was this sense that, you know, the doctor and patient are kind of one. You know, he spends a lot of time talking about his own sort of medical issues and how they're being dealt with. And it really is sort of, you know, I mean, everybody talks about empathy um, when we're talking about innovation and design. And it's sort of having this understanding of of being on both sides of it that comes across in this book. And I think that's... um. 
you know, the patient will see you now. And it's me, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> the kind of thing where he's very he's, transparent. He's really, um, very transparent to the heart. Yeah. And he's clearly, he's taken a vow of transparency and I think it shows. So can you describe yourself as a humanist? Uh, do you want to expand on that? And how do you, how do you identify that way? Um, somebody asked me this not long ago and I, I realized what I, what I really mean by that is I think the key thing is having real dialogues with other people, making those sort of connections. There's a guy named Martin Buber, who's one of the great 20th century philosophers. And he talks about this idea of um, speaking the, the primal word, what he calls I, you. And what he means by this is when you are connecting with someone and, and that connection in that moment where you get past of trying to sort of exploit the other person on that in the dialogue and you're allowing yourself to see and to be seen by other person, when you get to that moment of deep mm-hmm. connection, that for him is the sort of this idea of humanistic holiness. That's what he's suggesting we try and get to. And he says it doesn't happen very often and most of the time it's not like that. We always are in sort of the mode of trying to get something from someone else using people as ends. But what he says is that if we're always striving toward this sort of I, you moment, if that's what we can dedicate ourselves to, we're doing the right humanistic thing. And that's how I like to think of it. I think of it as um, striving for having the realest conversation, the most real conversations you can have with other people. And when you do that, you're achieving this sort of level of humanism that's, that's really called for. And that's what I try and do. Do you have a pen and paper? Okay. Write this down. (laughs) So I'm reading this book right now called team human by Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, You got to put it in your list. And he, you know, basically it's a manifesto um, against all this, all of our mediated technology and, um, in such that has disconnected us from one another. And it's uh, a call to action mm-hmm. about pulling ourselves back to um, this, this, this human connection that we've really lost, uh, lost connection with. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it and you, I think you'll get a kick out of it. I'll check it out. No, I think it's hard too, right? Because if you think about what's happening now, like we are basically living at the, in a weird sort of golden age of, of social media now, because the way it's set up, it's like we have very clear control over when uh, we are actually engaged mm-hmm. and online, right? We sit down at a device, we're online, you're at your phone, you're on your phone, you're pecking away at it and you're online or at your computer, you do it. Soon the internet is going to disappear into all of our objects, and the way we talk to each other will change. Uh, absolutely, is going to change, and we're just starting to see that with Alexa and such. But we are—it's not going to be the same kind of thing when every single object we own has mm-hmm. a chip in it, and uh, it's going to change the way um, our modes of communication really in a very different way. And we're going to be always online in some form or another, and uh, that lack of um, visibility into when we're communicating is going to change. And so it's sort of like we need to um, be aware that's coming and we need to. But in the, but in the words of Sherry Turkle, we're, we've never been more alone though, right? Despite this, you know, the promise of social media is that we would never be more connected when in fact the way it's playing out right. is uh, maybe a little different. So, um, you know, I think in medicine, I think we are in a period of irrational exuberance with all these these technologies. And Topol mm. brings us up in deep medicine that with AI, we need to take a deep breath because there's so much hype around it. Um, and I think we have the 
really lost some of that, some of that real human touch. And um, we've let the technology kind of drive us as opposed to us driving the technology. And I suspect, um, I suspect this is going to level out and we're going to, we're going to come back to a plateau where a prior, yeah, where you know, technology, I think kind of prioritizes us, but that's just a, prediction. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the, the key thing is you always want to try and be honest with yourself and with other people, no matter how you're talking to them and you're going to be mediated mm, somehow. True. And it's sort of like try, try and assert your humanism, uh, no matter how you're speaking or, you know, what channel, what platform you're on. And, you know, even that, like we're, we're now we're, we're starting to get a little view into what happens on these platforms. And there's not, there's sometimes not such great things happening that we don't even see that we're not even aware of that happens to our data. And, um, you know, and I think that's going to change. I mean, I, I remember once one day I woke up and there was some terrible news about some data breach or something. And I thought, wow, my grandchildren are going to be like, you actually put all your thoughts and feelings onto the computer for everyone. What are you right. insane? And I thought, yeah, people, it's going to become like Samizat and people are going to write little zines again and they're going to pass them around. And the only person who deserves to see your, uh, your words are the people or your friends who can actually see what you put in down on paper and stapled together yeah. and passed around because it's just, you know, it's, it's just insecure and maybe that'll happen and maybe it won't. I don't you know for sure. We're, we're seeing social networks pull back. People want more private spaces to have private conversations. And That's right. And now we have sort of semi-social networks. So you have people talking in WhatsApps and chat groups and they don't want everybody to see just the people you like. But even that, you know, how secure is that data? Uh, so this movement of the of, of medical humanities, uh, there is a, a new Twitter chat called MedHum Chat. And so it's really taken off, and a lot of doctors are very interested in this uh, concept of medical humanities. What do you What do you think is behind that? What I think is behind this, and again, this is an outsider's view, is that I like MedHum Chat a lot. I've, a humanist view. A humanist. I view. love it. I love it. I think it's great. One of the things I love, you know, I'm I was a teacher of writing and, and you know books and stuff for years. And the idea of seeing people, I mean, MedHum Chat, for, for those of you who haven't um, participated in yet, is basically an hour once a week where um, doctors and the occasional humanists, such as myself, will look at a, a short poem and maybe an essay or a short story and read through it basically uh, line by line and talk and giving our reactions to these different sections of these works of literature. And so it's sort of like that that sort of close reading stuff that we teach and are taught in schools, except that you have people here who are uh, during their day jobs, during the rest of their time, are engaged in these sort of life and death matters. And so what they're talking about very often is their reactions to these poems uh, are the things they've seen in the exam room and on their hospital rounds. And it's really very moving and telling because you can just feel that they, they're not able to talk about, to process all the things they've seen and felt. And they're doing mm -hmm. it now in the guise of um, literary exegesis, which is pretty awesome. You know, what's really interesting, you, you're aware of the Nocturnist, right? No, what's the Nocturnist? So Nocturnist, it's uh, uh, Amy Silverman, who is, I think, an internist or hospitalist from UCSF, started a um, evenings where people come and tell patient stories and uh, physicians and caregivers uh, tell stories. And it's turned into an amazing podcast series called the Nocturnists and Colleen Farrell who started med hum chat is now going to have a live med hum chat at the next Nocturnist uh, 
exhibition, I think this this coming summer. Uh, so to see all these, to see the rise of, of storytelling and the humanities kind of coming together in this kind of way, uh, it, it, it's it's it, it's fulfilling an itch, I think. Um, and so there's something missing in what we're doing. And I think as things become more industrialized, this is, uh, this is what we're missing. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things and the great irony of the success of MedHome Chat is that the, uh, the format of sitting in front of a computer and typing things in is, right. is the You're exact right, right. same format of the EHR, right? And yeah. the idea, like it really isn't the medium. Maybe it is what you're doing when you're there. And that uh, says something. I think that's really an important thing to take note of. So the medium is not the message, as McLuhan said. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, you could use it to do life-giving uh, poetry or you could do it to fill in fields for exactly. coding, right? Right. So, Ken, tell us how uh, we can learn more about uh, your work and Continuum's work in, uh, in healthcare and design. Uh, yeah, you can go to our website. Uh, which is at continuuminnovation.com. You guys have a podcast too, don't you? Oh you yeah, you're right. We should, we have a podcast as well. It's called uh, The Resonance Test. And if you go to continuuminnovation.com uh, backslash podcast, you could see all the various people, a number of whom are from the healthcare space. Um, and we've uh, talked to some great folks and uh, we're going to talk to some great ones in the future. Maybe you. Yeah, they have. Uh, you guys have a killer a podcast I listened about three quarters of the way through on uh, AI for the rest of us. Oh yeah, we just did that um, one. Yeah, so you can, I guess they can find that on the Continuum Innovation or continuuminnovation.com and uh, you can look for that. So uh, I love what Continuum is doing in terms of reaching out to um, see what's happening in the world because that's really how we uh, create the most, uh, the products with the most empathy, right? Yeah, yep. And so, Ken, thank you very, very much for joining us in the exam room, and uh, we hope to have you on again.